You may be wondering the difference between a board game and a tabletop game. Well, it's simple. You play a tabletop game on a tabletop, and you play a board game only if you're really bored. Welcome to Triple Click, and I'm sorry for that joke, but we're still going to bring the games to you. This week, we're answering some listener questions about microtransactions, how games we played as kids might seem easier or harder now, games that disturb us, our favorite board games, and much more. Here we go. I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. And I'm Jason Dreyer. Hello. 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 Hey, look who it is. It's look who's us. back. Mac My two favorite again. podcast co-hosts. Mm-hmm. Two favorite mm. lowercase g gamers. Lowercase g again. gamers as well. It's You're us also three lower, gamers. the lowercase g crew, right? Up <laughs> True. In here. That's what they call us. You know, uh-huh. I've got a shirt that says lowercase g crew on it. People know what it means when I mm-hmm. wear that when I go through town. <laughs> I want a shirt that's like lowercase g and then capital A M E R. So it's like <laughs> that sounds that like be good. maybe the third game in the AI the Somnium Files it does. series. I was thinking yes, the exactly. same thing. It's definitely, it's definitely the title of a of a Japanese game. Yeah. If we ever get another T-shirt made, we should get a lower that T-shirt. That would be a very good T-shirt. Uh-huh. That was a good merch idea. I would yeah. wear that with lowercase G in the rest, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. uppercase letters. Well, you're listening to Triple Click a podcast about video games. We're very happy that you're here, and um, we'd be even happier if you became a Maximum Fun member. And we suspect that you too might be happier if you became <laughs> yeah, it, a Maximum Fun member. That's yeah. true. It really does. It improves your life. You're helping support the creation of a show like Triple Click, and you get access to bonus episodes that we make. One per month. We just put out a new one about... The marvelous, wonderful, absolutely flawless Suicoden 2 mm-hmm. 1998 video game that the three of us just completed and had no notes about nope. <laughs> in the end. Just loved it top to bottom. No, we had some thoughts, but uh, we liked it. We didn't like some things. It was very fun. It's the end of a saga, and you can catch the end of that saga in the Maximum Fun bonus feed along with other monthly bonus episodes. We did Elden Ring recently. We watched the Die Hard movies. We did Horizon, Forbidden West, all kinds of stuff. Lots of um, good going content. Back Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of good content. We've done like 27 of those or something now. So if you want to become a member and support our show, go to MaximumFun.org slash join. That's the URL you want to visit. And uh, and we hope that you do. And thanks to everybody who is already a member and supports our show. So before we get started, I want to shout out a cool thing that exists now that listeners can check out yep. that they're probably hearing underneath me. So as listeners probably know, our own Maddie Myers, quite the singer, quite the songwriter, uh, makes a lot of very cool music. Every now um, and then I own. do. Every now, Every now and then. And um, one of her songs was recently remixed by... A, a musician who goes by Bit Culture. That's right. And somebody else who's <laughs> very good at playing the saxophone was approached and asked to perform a solo in this remix. That is true. That and is true. It was our very own Kirk Hamilton. So now there is a, mu- a triple-click musical crossover featuring Maddie Mitty Myers and Kirk Hamilton on saxophone. The two of us playing together on Maddie's song "Bad Feeling," mm-hmm. which is a dope song, and you should totally check out the remix because I think this is the first time that Maddie and I have 
put out a musical thing together, but probably probably won't be the last. It is. It is the first time we put out an official musical thing together. It will probably happen again. So it's really cool, and shout out to Bit Culture because I think this remix is really oh, awesome. Yeah. He did such an amazing job, and also yeah. he's been delightfully abashed at all the compliments. So I think people should <laughs> definitely tweet at him. His handles also Bit Culture and tell tell him yes. how cool they think his song is because it's it's adorable. So uh, it's, it's very yeah, cool. Really, really cool remix. Yeah. So check that out. Just wanted to mention that up top. All right, Jason. What are we doing on this episode? This week we are opening up the old mailbag. <laughs> Can you add some sound effects of me? Like, oh, is that like shit, a Velcro on the top um, of the mailbag? Just asking for sound effects all It's a Velcro, all over yeah, it's like a little backpack. No, it's uh-huh. like one of those those bags that you get with a dollar sign on the end, except instead it has the triple click logo and then like a big okay, piece of right. mail, like the, the email, like the Gmail like envelope under mm. the triple click logo. Mm-hmm. Triple it is kind mail. of... It's kind of hard to decide what sound effect that would be. Like, I usually just go to the Apple, like, loops sound effects, and they have uh-huh. a lot of sound effects, but I don't know if they have I got mailbag opening. What you have to do is, AOL, you've got mail. Uh, oh, that's, okay. That's it. Sure. Got mail. Um, so today we are doing some burning questions. As always, these are questions from our listeners, um, and as always, you can send us your own questions at tripleclick at maximumfun.org. We uh, read through someone, usually me reads through every single one of them. We don't read all of them on the show, but we do read every single one. So your emails are not being ignored, even though sometimes we don't always have time to respond to all of them, unfortunately. But rest assured, if you send us an email, it was read by someone. (laughs) All right. Let's get started. We have some great questions today. Um, This first one is from Emil. Maddie, you want to kick us off? Sure. So Emil writes... I would love to hear your thoughts on microtransactions. I just discovered they would be present in Watch Dogs Legion and lost all will to buy it. This email is from a couple years ago. (laughs) Yeah, although I love the idea of a meal only now considering buying Watch Dogs Legion. I would like living in that world as well. Why not? You could be considering buying it now. It's true. Could be Anyway, Emil continues. It's generally hard to find information about whether or not a game has microtransactions. In the case of Watchdog or Ubisoft titles in general, it would be nice with a switch off button as an accessibility. As a parent, you could disable these targeted ads for your child or teen. I mean, since I've already bought your product, why does it have commercials? (laughs) Interesting way to think about it. Some friends, including me, would rather pay 50% or more for a product with no microtransactions. Hmm. So I've been thinking about this a little bit because okay. I last night I opened up NBA 2K on my uh, on my PlayStation 5 and I've never seen a game that's more egregiously filled of like like Notorious just to, to start the game just to start the game you have to close two different menus that are both trying to convince you to spend <laughs> like 20 bucks on shit. Mhm. Yeah. Um, you walk around this little town and it's just full of people trying to get you to spend money on something or another. It's really just like a giant Massive casino. Isn't there? Is that the game with the State Farm representative as a character in the game? Oh yeah, (laughs) really? Yes. Well, there's also. I mean, it's just full of plugs. At one point, (laughs) the you live with this guy, and he's like, "Yo, we're out of Gatorade. I drink all the Gatorade. Go get some Gatorade." And And it's like like a quest. It's the most delicious sports beverage, and it replenishes the electrolytes for me. So please (laughs) go get some more. Yeah, Yeah. it's quite something. It's like living in a weird corporate city where you just walk around, and various corporations are talking. I like this idea of having a switch off. 
button for all microtransactions. Like, it's never going to happen because it would be too easy and simple and make things too much better. And then companies (laughs) wouldn't be able to make as much money. But it would be so nice if you could just flip a setting that was just like no microtransactions anymore. Right. Yeah, it would be nice. What would it take for that to happen? I guess it would be legislation, right? There would need to be some sort of law passed where... Hmm. The, like companies are required to give that option or like if you're selling to a certain age group, you could, I could kind of imagine it. I mean, I can't imagine the political will to make that happen, but I do feel like that's what it would take for that to be a kind of standardized option across the industry. But while I'm imagining that impossible world that doesn't exist, it's a nice world. It'd be nice if you could just know, you know, you buy the game at this, you know, you you whatever, maybe you pay extra or you just opt out. And then you just turn that off. And then that is just taken out of your game entirely. That would be wonderful. It's a great idea (laughs) by Emil. (laughs) Yeah, although it does change how a lot of games would work. Like, for example, Fortnite, most of the microtransactions, I believe all of them are aesthetic in Fortnite, famously. There's no pay-to-win system in that game as there is in Mm -hmm. Diablo Immortal, which we talked about not too long ago. But... For Fortnite, let's say. Well, we should say we're talking about premium games, not free-to-play games, I think, for the sake of this conversation. Well, but I don't know if it's that different, because what if there was something you could pay for Fortnite that was like a subscription, where it's just like you pay this and every time you'll get every item, and you don't have to worry Mm -hmm. about microtransactions ever, and you're paying more in order to get all the items. Would that work? Because I know I know the the defense of microtransactions and also battle passes and ongoing ways to get players to pay more money, sometimes on top of already paying $60 or $70 is, well, it's how these game devs stay in business. How, how else are they going to sustain an income because more and more people are playing and buying the game and this is just another price model. So is there some other way that feels less crappy than paying $1? 12 times. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's it's it's hard to consider it across every type of video game, which I think Jason is kind of where you were getting at. It's just that it the minute you're considering every kind it's very complicated and there's a bunch of different models. Right. If you do just look at a game like Watch Dogs Legion, hmm. that's where it becomes at least possible to imagine something like Emil describes where you buy the game and then there's just no stuff within the game because I could see just as a parent using that kind of specific lens. Yeah, you buy your kids something and then the thing that you bought them is immediately like, hey, buy this extra stuff. Hey, buy this stuff. Every time they turn it on, that would really turn me off as a parent. And I would love to have, you know, I would certainly want a way to turn that off. Yeah, Yeah, it would be maybe the instead of just filling these like deluxe and ultimate editions of these games up with crap, maybe they should sell sell it as like, hey, you buy the ultimate edition and this game will have no microtransactions in it. (laughs) Isn't that kind of I mean, there are mobile games and mobile apps that do work that way, where if you pay a dollar or two, you it turns all that stuff off. I love that when I can do that with a game I like when I have the option to pay five dollars to just never Mm -hmm. see an ad again. That's always really nice. And I mean, that's what I do for Hulu, for example. I pay more for the version of Hulu that doesn't have ads, which is Mm -hmm. no different. I mean, it's the same idea. Basically, you're not going to try to sell me more stuff um, because I'm paying extra. And so those models, I guess, exist, but they're totally unregulated and not consistent because everybody just does something different. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, oh, I'm going to talk more about Paramount TV Plus, but uh, because that's my one more thing is a show from that because we've been watching some shows on that network and that network doesn't have ads, but at the beginning of every show you watch, 
they show you an ad for other Paramount TV Plus programming, which is pretty standard, but you can't skip it. Uh, mm. At least we're watching through Roku and you can't skip it, which is very annoying. And yeah. um, I wish they would change that. So it's like that's a very subtle difference between that and, say, I don't know, HBO, which lets you skip the things. But there's because there's no standardization, you never really know what you're going to get, which is certainly then true for video games, too. I think what Ubisoft should do is they should order a offer a bonus game to anyone who becomes a Max Fun member. <laughs> so it helps them support their company. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, they should they should just have subscriber only content. They should have a bonus audio tier. Um mm-hmm. let's get to another question. Kirk, you want to read this one? Sure. This question comes from Sean who writes in the last month, I found myself playing newer versions of some games I played in the 90s as a kid. Specifically, I've been playing Super Mario 64 and recently played the remaster of Command & Conquer Red Alert that came out a few months ago. Looking back, I was probably too young to be playing a game like Red Alert, but I have an older brother who showed me the game and I loved it immediately. What struck me was how different it, it felt. Violent. Yeah, no, no, I think it's fine. Um, what struck me was how different it felt playing these games now compared to my memory of them. I never got all 120 stars in Mario 64, but back in the day, I considered myself quite good at the game. I remember running through later levels with ease and using shortcuts to time myself on the last Bowser stage. However, in Red Alert, I always found the game far too difficult to play the later missions in the campaign. About halfway through, there would always be some mission where I found myself unprepared for an enemy and panicked, leading to failure. Fast forward a couple of decades, and now my experiences have completely flipped. Playing Mario 64 again, all the stars condition feels clunky and uncomfortable, like trying to build an Ikea table with only a hammer when other tools are clearly needed. Very good way of describing playing a Nintendo 64 game in 2022. Um, then, when playing Red Alert, I find the campaign almost laughably easy, and I'm left wondering why I was so intimidated by the meager forces of the AI enemy. Have any of you experienced something similar? Have you gone back to revisit a game from your childhood only to find your experience of playing has completely flipped? (laughs) Well, Jason, I guess I would ask you this first, since we did just finish playing a game from your childhood. Did you find anything like this with Suicoden 2? No, but I think I played that late enough that it it doesn't really count as a child. Because I was like Mm -hmm. 12 or 13 when I played Mm -hmm. that game. So it's not like, like, I think the, 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 Teenage experience is very different than like six to ten year old experience of playing games. But I was actually thinking this Red Alert reference made me think of Warcraft Two, which I yeah, recently that's what I was loaded up on my computer. Thinking of You're as thinking well. about this too. I yeah. recently loaded it up on my computer, and uh, as a kid, I think I had been really into using cheat codes. Um, but even when I didn't use cheat codes, uh, I was I found it pretty easy as a kid, or I, like I was able to beat it. As an adult, I'm like, man, this game is fucking hard. And maybe it's because I'm, <laughs> I'm so used to StarCraft Two, which is a game I play almost every day, and I'm very used to like a different kind of RTS feel. Um, but I found Warcraft Two to be <laughs> very difficult replaying mm-hmm. it today. Also very sluggish and lame, and uh, kind of strange how all the character, all the the races are mirrored. Um, uh, so like uh, every single unit on the orc side is identical to every single unit on the human side, except for the casters, but that's a minor thing. Um, so basically it's like, instead of it being a strategy, it's just like whoever starts attacking first. Like if you have three grunts against three footmen, whoever starts attacking first is, is going to win. Um, but yeah, no, I, I found that, found that interesting. What about you guys? I think I like the premise of this question only because it, it is true for me as well that there are more arcadey or, you know, reflex-based games like Nintendo, uh, Mario 64 that when I played them as a kid, 
you know, I was just sort of adjusting to the controls and that was the best there was. And that when I play those now, the controls make a way bigger difference to me now. Or playing a Nintendo 64 game to me feels just terrible because the controls are weird and I'm just not used to them. Where a strategy game is a little more cerebral, like it's more mm-hmm. about your own understanding of the strategy and keeping all of the units in your head straight. And that's just something that does get a little bit easier as you get older. So it's like the kind of difficulty has changed of the two games and as and I, as a result like your brain also has changed so your relationship to that difficulty would change and i've certainly found that to be true i know there are yeah you know classic side scrollers well, although also i mean mario 64 it's just a 3d since that was the first essentially 3d platformer and 3d platformers have evolved so much over the years right. i think the main reason that feels clunky is because it is super clunky compared to modern games as opposed to if you go back now and play super mario world that game plays right. like a dream like it just feels like the total the quintessential 2d platformer mm-hmm. in a way that still hasn't been beaten today so i think it's more the game itself than it is um how old you were when you played it as opposed to something like red alert where maybe it's a little bit clunky today but you're playing a remastered version and like as long as you can control your dudes and maneuver them i agree with you that the cerebral aspect is really what made it what makes it easier today than it did when you were a kid but um but i think it's it's in mario 64's case it's the game more than the person yeah, it's that we were flexible about games that were not a perfected version of the control scheme, you know, and in, in this case, 3D games. Well, we didn't know any better. That was the perfected That's all there was. No, the right. Time. Like, we played yeah. uh, Goldeneye and got really good at uh-huh. those bananas controls. We're playing them now. It's like, you know, there's a way better way of doing this right yeah. now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, though, because my internal examples were going to be Tetris and Pac-Man and really simple arcade games where the controls mm. were so so straightforward that that is actually the best possible way to play those games there isn't really a better way than just a a joystick and a button or two other than you know I, i mean i was just playing them on the game boy but i remember that just taking up hours and hours and hours of my time and being able to play them endlessly because i had nothing better going on whereas as an adult um i guess it on the get played podcast recently actually we talked about pac man and i was like wow i don't have the stamina emotionally to play Pac-Man for very long anymore. Yeah, like yeah, I have yeah, sure. other things going on in my life. You know what I mean? Like I feel like that is part of the problem. <laughs> yes. like, it's not just a skill thing. It's like I don't want to play Pac-Man for that long anymore. Right. Uh, but that's, the other, no, it's a different kind of challenge. But that's yeah. Very true. It's it's like a time challenge and like, like an the opportunity cost. Of time. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the other example I have, I feel like I have the first half and not the second half of the story, which is that as a kid I really liked this game Amazon Trail, which is sort of a lesser known Oregon mm-hmm. Trail sequel and I mm-hmm. could never beat it and I'm not actually sure why but as a child I was convinced that the game had no ending and that it was impossible to beat because I felt as though I had tried everything and I always died at a certain point in the river and I just couldn't figure out why like I would there's some sort of RNG involved where like I would just always roll in order to get malaria there or whatever and I was like I guess you just can't ever get past this part but I I've like tweeted about this every few years because I'm obsessed with the idea of it. And people have told me they've beaten Amazon Trail and that I am wrong. And I feel like I need to go back and beat it and find out why. You should stream it. It was stream hard. playing Amazon Trail. It's, I don't know if it's a fun watch. <laughs> but, Did you ever uh, play, I assume you played Oregon Trail. Did you ever play Oregon Trail 2? 
They're, they made a sequel to that game. I think I and did. It was I kind of remember it more elaborate. You had to like fill your cart up with all these different items. There were like dozens of items you could buy, and some of them were ridiculous. Like you could fill your car up with like a grandfather clock that did nothing what? but was super valuable and super heavy. And um, <laughs> you had to like ridiculous. pick different types of instead of just getting rations, you had to just pick specific types of food um, that you could get. It was really bizarre was there like a second act twist where you became a deer and then you had to hunt the hunter <laughs> it yes. made you really think about yes. both sides yeah, see what it feels like to run well, the from whole the way as you're going um you hear this voice in your head that you assume mm-hmm. is god saying would you kindly cross the river would you kindly, the deer. Ford, Ford would you your wagon kindly be part of the imperialist expansion of the united right. states of america and, and then, then, then had, oh end, you had no choice you were the final ox that died you were manifest destiny all along um, all right. <laughs> what a twist. Here is a question from Benjamin. Benjamin says, I picked up the Stanley Parable and I loved it years ago. And while I bursted out laughing for a few minutes this time with a new version, I quickly found a scene of child endangerment and soon after a disturbing image of animal violence. And now I don't want to play it anymore. And yet maybe I still do. How do you handle a game when it emotionally affects you? Regardless of whether y'all talk about my question on the air, I appreciate the safe space you create with your audience and being able to talk about my experience here is now. Thanks for the show and helping me through the difficulties of life. You are a bright spot. You're very welcome, Benjamin. Um, yeah, how do you guys handle a game when it uh, when it impacts you like that? Sort of disturbing, I guess. Maybe I my my feelings are just numbed, but it's been a while for me since I've yeah, Kirk doesn't I really get disturbed Kirk. anymore. I'm, I'm with you there, Kirk. That's hilarious. Like, I guess I know there are games like I'm thinking of a game like something deliberately, you know, shocking, uh, provocative, like hatred where you're just murdering innocent civilians or that sequence in modern warfare. Mm hmm. Or like sort of uh, old school examples, like, you know, the way the sex workers are depicted in GTA and how you, right. quote unquote, have to kill them in order to get your money back. And right. just kind of that game design ethos. Like with that kind of thing, at least I, I can just avoid it. Where mm-hmm. something like No Russian, I guess you can skip No Russian, but I remember playing through that and I found that pretty distressing. Um, yeah. Or the torture sequence in GTA Five as one that's a story sequence that you can't mm. really skip, or at least you couldn't when I played mm-hmm. it. There's mm-hmm. a torture sequence in Black Ops One, I want to say. I think that's the one oh, that where you familiar. feed glass to a guy. Yeah, cool it's stuff. kind of a button less interactive <laughs> yeah. than GTA Five, but yeah. So you know, I guess there have been things like that. I I typically, since I'm always playing games with my critic hat on, I just sort of do it and play through it, just because I know. You know, I kind of remove myself from it and think about it in that way and know that I'm going to have some thoughts about it and talk about it. Certainly no Russian was that way. It was a very talked about mm-hmm. mission. This is, I'm sure a lot of listeners know it. If you don't, this was in Modern Warfare 2. You played this one-off mission where you just shot a bunch of innocent people in a in mm-hmm. an airport. and You're you just, a spy uh, taking right. part in a terrorist organization. Right. And he, he goes all in method mm-hmm. acting style and kills a lot of innocent people. Or, you know, I guess you can kind of just walk through it and not kill them. And then you he, can. Yeah. Although you would think the other terrorists would really notice you doing that. But for they, some you reason, think. You I mean, they kill you at the end of the mission anyways. So I think they already knew you were a, a, a spy. So they don't, they're, they don't care. They're just trying to make you do I don't know. Whatever. Modern Warfare 2 is a mess. Um, <laughs> so I but I, I remember being like, this is going to be distressing. And then I played through it. I did shoot some civilians because I was like, well, okay, I'm going to play this thing the way you're supposed to. And it was messed up and I felt bad about it. And the visuals are really haunting and bad. And it kind of made me think about 
what you do in video games a lot and shooting people in games and how it's actually like never a great feeling, even though a lot of times games make it feel so good when you actually think about it, it's kind of weird. And, you know, it was it was not a fun experience. It wasn't, you know, I didn't, it didn't really get me or anything or, or make me feel super distressed, but it wasn't, it wasn't enjoyable, but I just engaged with it critically and then had a reason for my job and for, you know, for, for my own sort of professional edification to do it. So I, te I tend to think of it that way, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember having a similar experience with the last of us part two. There are a few mm -hmm. parts of that game that I would say are intentionally manipulating you to have a discussed reaction. I, I think that's part of how that game for sure. A torture working. sequence in that game. Yeah, too, there are actually. some there's some sequences where you, you know, you have to press a quick time event to torture somebody or kill somebody. And mm -hmm. I would have my moments of pausing and putting my controller down and being like, I don't want to continue this. But I was reviewing it. And so, you know, I'd walk around my apartment and be like, why isn't this working for me? And write down in my notes why I didn't think it worked. And that, it's, a, I guess, perhaps a slightly different way to think about a game than uh, the average person. Because I was like, well, I'm going to beat this no matter what, I guess. But I also right. think it can be useful to think, why is this affecting me? And what is it about the game that isn't working in this moment? And why isn't it working? Mm -hmm. And is there a version of this scene that I think would have worked better than this? And that question can be really interesting and sometimes helps me get out of my head when I'm legitimately upset. I don't know. Maybe people would be surprised to hear that. But I there were some moments when I was legit upset playing The Last of Us Part Two. That isn't the only reason I disliked it, because I do think the game wanted me to be legit upset. And that that right. can be that can be a good thing. It's like why I compliment a game like Celeste. That game made me upset, but in a in a way I thought was emotionally affecting in a smart way but um in the last of us part two i didn't feel like it was worthwhile and that and that can be interesting that can be interesting to consider when you're playing a game mm -hmm. um all right next question maddie take us away all right keller writes my question is what are your what are some of your favorite board games i know this is a video game podcast but I'm curious what board games really get you going. My friends and I are obsessed with Catan, and my roommate recently purchased Root, which we are so excited to try. I feel like this is just a Kirk Hamilton question. It is a Kirk question. <laughs> Although I've been, I've been playing a lot of Candyland recently. Oh. Candyland is terrible. Well, I hate Candyland. <laughs> Don't oh get God. me started. Wow. <laughs> what do you think of it, Jason? Well, it isn't really a game because you're yeah. not actually doing anything, but when you have well, a you don't have free will. When you have a near three-year-old who is very entertained by the colors and gets very excited when she says, two purple, uh, <laughs> then it can be a very good game. Yeah, I remember playing that with one of my nieces when she was younger and just being like, this is just trash. I was like, I can't play this game. It's terrible. <laughs> the, game, the game critic part of you. I think like... I almost reviewed it for Kotaku, actually. I think I almost, I wanted, I was like, I should do Candyland, the Kotaku review, and you then just have. rip it apart. Oh. And I never, I don't, I never did. I may have written about it or something. I don't think I ever did. Are you also going to just start reviewing children's video games and be like, oh, this is garbage. This just is try, try, try I do think there are better. Games. I think there are board games that are better, like that kids can play. That, that not, have... not until they're older. That's the thing. When they're at the sweet spot of like two to four, they can't understand like choice based games. But it's mm -hmm. fun for them to be exposed to like the idea of picking up cars and moving a piece sure. on a board. Sure. So it's helpful in that sense. I was I was in your exact camp until I had a toddler of my own, I got to say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is just one of those parents, real parents know it is. kinds of things. It is. But anyway, answer the question for real, though. 
Um, I mean, so I've talked a lot about Gloomhaven. I do think Gloomhaven is a lot of fun. That's probably the most complex board is game I've favorite? ever played. What's oh, your favorite I ever? Uh, I, I can't answer that. Probably um, Scrabble. I'm kidding. I have no idea. Because you know, I'm not. Solid. I'm not some. You know, I'm not some board game expert here. I'm not some. Yeah, but you played a lot. Surely you can. Surely you have a favorite. Right, right, right. I feel right, like right. we should answer. I mean, just because this is such a broad question, it's more fun to try to answer according to classic childhood board games, like the Monopolies, Scrabbles, and Connect Fours of the world. Guess I mean, who? Those are at great all. games. I mean, what was your favorite one? Games. I haven't answered that. Oh, I, I love Scrabble. I think Scrabble is my favorite of all of the of all of those kinds of games. Scrabble is quite good uh my family didn't play a ton of scrabble so i I didn't really get into it until i was a bit older uh but my favorite childhood board game was this game called the barbie game where you play as barbie and this is this is a game from like the 50s or the 60s it was like an ancient board game that was my mother's and you have to pick out your prom dress and you have to, it's kind of like Monopoly. You have to like sort of get social accolades of some kind as you go around the board. I don't fully remember that aspect of it, but I do know that if you'd sort of like leveled up enough, you could get the hottest guy to go to prom with you, or you could get, there was a guy named Poindexter who was like the worst guy. Uh, (laughs) Wow. I know. It was really cutthroat. the anti-nerd narrative. I know. They, it was really anti-nerd. I mean, what are you going to do, you know? Man. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like <laughs> Ticket to Ride. That's one of my favorite Oh, games. Ticket to Ride is great. Ticket to Ride, okay. You know what I really like, actually, is a game that we played a lot uh, in my family when I was young. Is a game called Balderdash. Have either of you played yes. that game? Yes. Uh-huh. Great yep. game. That's a really fun one because it's, it involves some creativity. Sort of like early Jackbox concept there. So that game, right. So the the... That game is there are you're given a word and then everybody makes up a definition for it and submits it. And then you read all the words and you try to vote on what you think the, the real definition is. Right. Like the real the definition, definition is among the fake ones. Right. Yeah. I <laughs> I played that game a lot in college with a lot of English majors who were all extremely good at coming up with fake definitions. It's and fun it was to play with people who are good. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because people uh-huh. would like my friends would even come up with fake etymologies for words where they'd be like, this is from like this Greek root that I know or right, whatever. Right. And like or this, you know, British ancient word or whatever it was. And they would be accurate but it would just not actually be the real etymology of that and word then sometimes they'll get it <laughs> yeah. because there are people who can figure out the word and then you get extra points if you actually of course figure yeah. out the definition or no yeah this i feel like there is a jackbox game that is either this or very similar to yes. this but yep, yeah there is there is well and there was also there's another there's the other way around where there's i can't remember the name of the game where they'll give you the definition and you have to make up what the word is and so mm. then it's basically the same idea. And I'll just say really briefly, since I have played a lot of board games, that anyone looking for really crunchy games, that Gloomhaven is very fun and so is Star Wars Imperial Assault. And that Root, which Keller mentioned, is a fantastic game. And I've talked about it before, but it's been a little while. But that game is really, really very good. It's complicated, but once you get going, it takes a few games to learn because each of the different sides is very different. It's a very StarCraft kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you've played as each of the major groups, it's so much fun as a just tactical uh, competitive strategy game. So I do really love Root and recommend that game, too. Um, in February of 2020, I bought Pandemic Legacy and it has gone untouched. Since oh, man. Then. I mean, so. I should say wow. that, too. <laughs> Pandemic Legacy, one of the best board games I've ever played. Season one of Pandemic Legacy is incredible. So but, cool if you ever can but, do uh, it. Now, now that we're still in a pandemic two and a half years later, I don't know if, uh, if it'll be Well, um, yeah. let's get to it. a couple more questions. Kirk, That's you want to read this next one? Sure. This comes from Ryan. Ryan writes, hello, triple click. I am curious on y'all's thoughts on the critical path for open and semi-open world games. 
recently noticed that for some games, I followed exactly the best path for progress, such that everything felt balanced and rewarding in Outer Wilds, Tunic, The Witness, while for other games, I've gone out of order or had bad luck, and I felt that the games were poorly balanced and frustrating. <laughs> Echoes of the Eye, Elden Ring, and Wildermyth. Do nonlinear games have a best progression order? If a player doesn't achieve this best order, is it the game's fault or just bad luck? How do some games, like Elden Ring, still make it somewhat fun, even if you're hopelessly off the path? How does Ecotag play a role? Thank you, Ryan, for asking. That's the most important part of this question. Uh -huh. Are these games accessible in terms of allowing players to extract the maximum amount of joy out of them? Is this inherent to the design of these games, or can this problem be designed around? I love that definition of accessible. Sorry, yes. keep going. I, I've, I've noticed these games tend to be polarizing, and I was especially surprised by how differently I felt about Outer Wilds and Echoes of the Eye. The two, mm. like he really loved Outer Wilds and was frustrated by Echoes of the Eye. Uh -huh. That's an interesting question. I don't know what are the two well, you Well, I think there's... It's interesting that he found that Elden Ring, he went out of order in, because I feel like Elden Ring is actually really good at signposting and saying, okay, you should do this, and then you should do this. It's like, mm -hmm. clearly you go do Godwin mm -hmm. and his castle first, and then clearly the Academy is next, and you just go do stuff around those areas. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting thing. I actually feel like most non-linear games at the very least will tell you where to go first and they'll give you like there will always be a clear introductory uh area um that said there's an old game called final fantasy 2 which didn't come out officially in english for a while it was just a japan only thing for for a long time but it was essentially well not the first open world rpg but one of them um and you could just walk in any direction and just immediately die and it was, it was <laughs> final wow. fantasy 2 it was directed by this guy named kazawa Kawazu, Kazawu, Kawazu, who uh, who went on to direct the Saga series, which is a series of games that mm. deliberately fucks with the player at every possibility. But anyway, point being that I think most open world games or most nonlinear games do push you in a certain direction now. I guess so. I, I'm also sort of intrigued that Ryan had a bad experience with Elden Ring um, and mentions having bad luck as part of that, which is sort of a funny image and can certainly happen in something like Elden Ring, where, yeah. yes, I agree, it's really well designed, but you can do some of it out of order to an extent where you could just so happen go to several areas that were all wildly over leveled for you and then be kind of you know grinding your way through them and then maybe become wildly over leveled as a result of that and then go back and face lower level enemies and not find that fun that's that's what i'm imagining ryan might have done and yeah that would be too bad but i i feel like elden ring out of all these these games is probably one of the best open world games for me a person who generally actually prefers more linear games like usually when people complain mm -hmm. about a game and they're like oh it's too linear oh it keeps you on the path i'm like thank goodness i'm not gonna get lost in this one i'm gonna know exactly what i'm supposed to do for once in my life um and i don't i don't necessarily mean having a long to-do list in the ui or whatever that isn't my thing, but I do like not getting incredibly lost, which I used to get lost all the time in like GTA and Skyrim and everything and feel really overwhelmed by those games. So I don't know. I kind of like it when a game tells you where you're supposed to go next with um, Half-Life 2-esque design cues, mm -hmm. a subtle nod. There's kind of a difference with some of these games. These are good examples that Ryan sent in because Elden Ring, a lot of it is sort of tied up with your level and how mm -hmm. difficult 
what you're supposed to be fighting is, and there's a lot of numbers in that game. So if you just sort of go somewhere really hard, if you're in Kaled at level three, you're going to be getting crushed, and the game is sort of telling you, well, maybe go somewhere else, which is something that Dark Souls, of course, does really well, right? The very beginning of Dark Souls, you go into that cemetery and Mm -hmm. there's these skeletons that just wreck you and you're like okay well maybe i'm gonna go somewhere else and you just kind of naturally go somewhere else even though you can run through the cemetery and you know go way down and get the get the scythe and then be overpowered or whatever you (laughs) do the things that the guides tell you to do but generally speaking the game is telling you what to do i think outer wilds is an interesting example and when ryan talks about good luck there is a, I can see it feeling like there's an element of luck to Outer Wilds because I've talked to people who the first thing they did was go to like, uh, to go to the scariest, worst place in that whole solar system yeah. and then just spend forever in the fog getting eaten by terrifying anglerfish. And they're like, what is this game? What am I supposed to be doing? But I don't think, but the game pretty heavily signposts that you should go to Giant Steep first. Like it makes it pretty clear. Well, I've talked to people though who've done that. Like I think the game makes it possible I mean, for you clearly, to just go and do of that. Of course it makes it possible, but they're clearly ignoring. I think when Ryan was talking about bad luck, he was talking about more about Echoes of the Eye, which I think is more susceptible because Echoes of the Eye really doesn't signpost where you should go at all and you can wind up kind of screwing yourself in some ways if you like we've heard from more than a few listeners since we talked about echoes of the eye last year we've heard from quite a few people who accidentally discover or like accidentally died to get into the matrix world and then thought that was how you get in and then you can really screw yourself so that that's like a bad luck example i think yeah, I mean, that's, so that's where I was going with that, is, is that Outer Wilds, and I'm talking about Outer Wilds just in general, that kind of game. The distinction that I'm drawing is that Outer Wilds is a game that does not have stats and numbers mm-hmm. like Elden Ring, where Elden Ring has all of these different ways of telling you that you're not supposed to be somewhere because mm. just an enemy kills you in one hit because you're, you don't have enough health. And that system just doesn't exist in Outer Wilds. So, well, what you were just describing, wandering the fog and just dying kind of tells you you shouldn't be there, too. Well, I guess so, but like you can fully explore, you know, Brittle Hollow first. Like that's not it's not like you shouldn't be there. Like there, you know, it's not like you need to level up before you go to Brittle Hollow because the game is completely horizontal. And then also, I mean, it doesn't have to be Brittle Hollow. It can be whatever, you know, yeah, if you what's don't the name basically of the planet with the like teleporting stuff. I think that was one of the places I went to early mm-hmm. in Outer Wilds and it's part of why my experience was really rough for the first several hours because I just couldn't figure it out. Like you have to keep taking pictures in order to figure out where dark matter is and it took me a while to get a hang of that and just mm-hmm. I mean Outer Wilds is kind of opaque at points. Like it, it doesn't right. really hold your hand that much. I think yeah, they also that's the point. modded it or not modded it, um, updated it since I played and changed at least some of the signposting for some of the harder puzzles. But it's tough. Um, Kirk, you've been saying Brittle Hollow, but I think you meant Dark Bramble. Mm. I did, yes. Sorry, Dark Bramble. I was, I was trying to remember the names. And then what's the name of the big green planet with the water on it? Giant's Deep. Giant's Deep? Giant's Deep. That's, That's the one you're supposed to go do first. And essentially when you take off, they're like, well, if you, you're you supposed to use the signal to find the astronauts, and that's the closest one. And also if you talk to people, they're like, go check out Giant's Deep first. That's the closest planet. Um, but, right, but we, but we know plenty of people who will purposefully... Right, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I'm not... Yes, yes. Leave that aside and just be like, well, I can go wherever. And the game doesn't actually have any method of forcing you there. So having gone to Giant's Deep first, that's a great planet because there's a lot going on. You bounce around, you get in the water, you learn about the physics. There's a lot you can kind of solve. You find the person, you talk to them on the island. Like, there's just a lot of that sort of 
stuff where if you go somewhere more challenging, I mean, even Brittle Hollow would be maybe kind of weird. It can just feel a little bit more challenging. So I, I understand basically the luck that it can feel like luck is playing into that because it's just sort of where you decide to go versus, oh, this is very clear to me. I don't have enough health. Like I'm getting killed. I should just go here or there. The game has fewer tools for telling you where to go. It can just kind of have characters suggest to you where to go, which is a little, a little bit more, a little bit more of a challenge, I suppose, from a game design standpoint. Um, mm-hmm. Let's try to squeeze in one last question. This is from Sean. Sean says, I've been wondering how you guys, as game journalists, try to gauge where the gaming community, that is those of us outside of the industry, stands on current news stories as a whole. In other parts of journalism, there are think tanks, pollsters, and research groups that try to figure out the opinions and thoughts of different groups of people. But I haven't really heard about an equivalent in the gaming world. Are there methods or resources you guys use to figure this out? Or do you have to just dive into forums or Steam reviews and do the best you can? This is such an interesting question because it's something we talk about at Kotaku all the time and how like there would be stories that are like, people are mad about this thing. And it's like, how do we really know that? Just because mm-hmm. we gather 20 tweets? Is that really a scientific assessment of this? You just have to feel for the vibe. What I do is just, I just think about what I feel about something uh-huh. and then and I then just then assume that everybody feels right, that right, way right, because yeah. that's usually the, that's usually true. <laughs> that's, that's never fair. true. <laughs> yeah, more and more people are saying this is how I start mm-hmm. an article every time. Right. Many people, <laughs> are, <laughs> saying people are saying this. Yeah. That they should remove the mini-map from all Yeah, games. it's interesting. I mean, you can kind of get a vibe like, uh, for example, with the with the, the most infamous um, example is the Xbox One reveal and you can really get a sense yeah. from just like looking at social media and Reddit and forums and stuff sometimes you could do twitter polls and kind of find your own ways of doing informal surveys but yeah i think it's really a lot about vibes and just reading enough community sentiment to get a sense of how people are feeling about it but yeah i do often wish or worry that um that there is no real good way to do it and we need some pollsters in the video game field that's what we really need well, and even polls don't tell you everything, I right? I mean, if you follow much political journalism, people, there's always a problem of sort of, yeah, you know, the, is this the, really the a problem or is this just Twitter, you know, because all the journalists are on Twitter? Like, that's a problem mm-hmm. across industries. Or is this just all the people who were called on the phone mm-hmm. by this specific polling right. company and who happened to be home? Or the question, you ask the same question in two different ways, you'll get a bazillion different answers. I think one way that we, that I at least get information that I find interesting is when people release money and player numbers. Like you'll see, you know, a game where I'll be like, oh, this game is terrible. I, I can't believe anyone would play this. And then they release the numbers and it's, you know, whatever, millions and millions of people played it and it made so much money. Like that alone, the specifics are often fudged or not clear, but it can give you a sense of wow, there's a huge number of people who play this whatever trashy mobile game and love it and are willing to just pay all this money into it. And it can give you a sense just to kind of keep you honest or to help you keep in mind that there are a lot of people who, for example, will play Diablo Immortal and not care at all about all the things that we complained about and have a great time and and happily pay money uh, to Blizzard. Kirk, what if I told you that Cyberpunk 2077 sold 16 million <laughs> copies in its first week at launch? Or first That's a good launch? example, though. That one's a little tricky because that was sort of a lot of that was based on pre-orders, and and mm. you could you could make an argument there around the the marketing of the game being very effective. But the numbers the numbers can be misleading too. I mean, there have been cases where companies are like, "Look how many copies of this game we sold," and internally, uh, actually, they're really disappointed or underwhelmed by it. But they have to sure, face. but you know, like that, it's a source of 
information that just like any of this information, I mean, all these things that Sean mentioned, think, tank, think tanks, pollsters, like none of those are things that you could just take at face value. You all, sure. you have to contextualize them. Yeah, all. it's all a and piece of the puzzle. Same thing is true there. So it's, it's part, it's a lot of it is vibes, you know, it's just listening to how the people in our discord talk or looking at the subreddit for a game and seeing how they're reacting. And that gives you a sense of the most engaged part of the, you know, community of this game which is something that matters because it's like the people playing the game the hardest who are on the Reddit talking about it, that's what they say. We found this with Destiny as a, to, to use as an example. Go to the Destiny Reddit. That would give you a sense of what people are mad about. Okay, they changed this gun and everyone thinks it sucks. They changed the loot. These people are all mad about it. But you did have to bear in mind that that was a, you know, there were maybe a million people on the Destiny subreddit at the time. And it was the game was being played by whatever, you know, order of magnitude more people. And a lot of people didn't even think about that stuff. So it's all balancing that information. Kirk, mm -hmm. this is so funny because I just had a conversation with a couple of friends where we were talking about like, what would you say is your favorite video game of all time? And someone was like, Jason, yours, one of yours is Destiny, right? And, I'm like, <laughs> no. and he's like, I thought you loved Destiny. Like it was all you played. I was like, it was all I played, but I hated it. Yeah. <laughs> That doesn't mean I loved it. I, mean, I kind of wonder that about the numbers on Diablo Immortal 2 for what it's worth. It's like just because something has a whole lot of numbers and a whole lot of money was spent on it. Are people enjoying that? I don't know. Right, or in five years, will they <laughs> yeah. say is their favorite? Yeah, game. that's all relative. I mean, they had 10, 10 million downloads, but like it's a free game. So yeah, exactly. well, that's meaningless. Really yeah, right. Yep. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> cool. All right, why don't we take a break and then we'll be back for one more thing. Al Loveland here with breaking news on a revolutionary form of entertainment: professional wrestling. For more, we go to our correspondent, Danielle Ranford. Professional wrestling is the craze that's sweeping the nation, featuring fisticuffs and colorful costumes. But who can help us make sense of this world of body slams? Lindsay Kelk has the answer. Sources tell us of an amazing podcast called Tights and Fights, filled with discussions of the absurdity of professional wrestling, plus all the sincerity and hilarity that you could shake a stick at. Listen to the Tights and Fights podcast every week. Find it on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. And your old-timey radio. Hey there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just gotta share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't. Rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back, Kirk, Maddie. It is time for one more thing. I am going to go first because I want to tell you guys a story. So okay. this weekend, uh, I went with a couple of buddies to Mohegan Sun, which is a casino um, here in the Northeast in Connecticut, in uh, uh, Uncasville, Connecticut. <laughs> Um, and at Mohegan, at the casino, my game of choice is not blackjack or roulette or even poker, even though I enjoy some aspects of all of those games. My game of choice is craps. Are either of you familiar with craps? 
I am. Or have you sure. played? Have you played craps? I am um, to the point where before you went, I asked Jason, "Are you going to play craps?" And you said yes. I assumed I yes. it would be your game of choice for it the reasons you're probably about to describe. It's pretty. Well, fun. it is my game of choice for a couple reasons. One, it's the only game in the casino where you can actually get. Um, not where you can eliminate the house advantage with mm. specific bets. There are these bets called odd bets. But two, because it's a brilliantly designed game. Now, the way that craps works is um, essentially, I'll, I'll give the very simplified version of it. There are two phases. The first phase is called the come out roll. And basically, whoever is rolling gets a chance to roll a point. So let's say I get a six. Then we this move is rolling to the second dice. phase. Yeah, yes. rolling yes, dice. Roll the dice. Rolling two dice. Then we get to the second phase, which is the point phase. And now my goal is to roll another six before I roll a seven. If I roll a seven, I lose. Everybody loses. Goes to the next uh, dice roller. How many? Can I ask? How many dice are you rolling at a time? Two roll. Two at a time. I have two okay. in my hand that I'm rolling at a time. So seven is the most common number, which is why it's the the loss. Um, but there's still you can still roll a six before you roll a seven. And so the way that it works is, and the reason. And it's a brilliant game is because in theory I could keep rolling infinite number of times without hitting a seven because if I roll a six that means that we hit the point everybody cheers everybody won especially if you put odds which again are the best bet in the, in the house um, which is what I do a lot and uh, you you can win a lot of money that way and then I get to roll again and let's say I roll another point I roll a five and then as long as I don't roll a seven when I'm in this point phase if I roll another five that's another winner I could keep doing this infinitely in theory as long as I never roll a seven during the point phase and just make tons and tons of money for everybody. And so it's really, it's the one game in the casino that can create this feeling of like being on a hot streak in a way that is just incredible. The euphoria, the euphoria of it is incredible. And well, everyone else rooting is rooting for, for you. you. Yeah, exactly. rooting for you. Yeah. yeah, people like I've seen cases where like people will tip the a hot dice roller yep, yep. And it's like it creates a sense That's, of camaraderie. it's where you get the the beautiful dame to blow oh, yeah, on the yeah. dice yeah. yes oh, oh yes in oh, classic yes. hollywood fashion. nothing like the old man with like the 20 something uh mm-hmm. woman next to him that's mm-hmm. that's like the key to craps victory um <laughs> So I love craps. I've always loved craps. Uh, Very easy to lose a lot of money very fast, but also very easy to win a lot of money very fast. Anyway, so here's my story. So in Mohegan's Sun, at the craps tables, they have a bet that is called a fire bet. And a fire bet is very much a silly long shot bet where you put a few dollars down. In this case, it was $5 down. And you are essentially saying, I am betting on this specific dice roller to hit the points for um, up to, so there's six potential points you can hit four, five, six, eight, uh, nine, and ten, right? So you're saying with this fire bet that I think this roller is gonna roll a four and then another four and then a five and then another five and then a six and then another six without ever rolling a seven during the point bets, right? You guys are following so far? So every time you hit one of those points, they put a little marker down, it's a fire marker, and the idea is the more you get, the more money you will win from this fire bet. So if he hits four points, you will win 25 to one. If he hits five points, you will win 250 to one. If he hits six points, you will win a thousand to one. So potentially $5,000 from that six point roll. Right. I did this every time I played crafts um, this weekend, which was a lot. Every time that we had a new round, I would put down five on the fire bed. So cut to Sunday morning. We're about to leave. I'm playing a little bit of crafts before. Just got a coffee. Going to play some crafts. Then we're going to hit the road. Um, I get up to this Always table. Coffee before. There's this crafts, old guy yeah. standing to my left. This guy, he's probably in his 90s. Everybody knows him. They call him Mr. B. He seems like a regular who's like there all the time. He's cracking jokes. He's hilarious. I get there just he's about to start rolling. I put money down. 
down. I say, can I join in? They say, sure. Because usually you don't want to join in when someone has already started rolling. It's considered bad etiquette. So I wanted to, I jumped in just as he was about to start. I said, can I get a fire vet? They said, no, it's too late. So this guy starts rolling. He rolls a five, then hits a five. He rolls a six, then hits a six. Rolls a four, then hits a four. He rolls a 10, then hits a 10. He's got four fire butts on the table. By this time, one of my friends has come over. I turn to my friend. I'm like, I don't have a fire bed here. If he gets the fire bed, I'm going to shoot myself. Guy <laughs> rolls a nine, hits a nine, rolls an eight. The table is going crazy at this point. To, just to reiterate, anybody who bet the fire bet, which is a lot of people at this table, will win $5,000 from that bet if he hits an eight. $5,000 from a $5 bet. Needless to say, he hits an eight. Everybody goes crazy. They are tipping him, cheering. The dealers are <laughs> like someone tipped the dealers. So the dealers even won four grand out of it. I'm sitting there. I'm just like, I cannot believe this just happened to me. The one the one single round of craps <laughs> that I played that coffee, man. without making this bet. I know, right? If I had just gone there without getting coffee. The one single time that I was there without making the bet, I did not get it. I missed out on $5,000. This is going to haunt me for That's the rest of my life. That's why they say the early gambler gets the fire bet. Mm-hmm, oh my mm-hmm. goodness so but that's this, my this story this is actually just why you're always going to place the fire bet every single time I mean they got well, you now even more so yeah that's I mean the true. fire no, bet that's don't not get me wrong. really how probability works at all so this, <laughs> that's how superstition works though uh-huh. it's so funny because it's such a stupid long shot bet I that know. normally I wouldn't make like a lot of people make the dumbest possible bets in crafts. Really, anything other than the odds is a dumb bet in crafts. But people are like, oh, yeah, I'm betting on the 11. Like, give me the hard four, the hard whatever. Like, all sorts of dumb bets. And that's all well and good. But It's like, almost like there's time, an irrational component of gambling or something. Hmm, there that is, can't be it. There is. Um, Weird. The one time, the one <laughs> time, the everybody, the guy watching him hand out these, like, $1,000 chips to everyone around me, I'm just, like, seething. And I won money because, like, it was a good role in general. Like, he had a hot but shooter, that wasn't so enough I for win you. money. But well, I mean, when you when you, it's like losing five thousand dollars at the table. You're like, man. Anyway, that's my story. Um, <laughs> Maddie, what's your one more thing? I don't bet on anything. Uh, my one more thing is Neon White, which is a video game. Yeah, it uh, is. It's a video game for PC. I got it on Steam. Um, got a code for it. This game is very pleasing to play for me personally. <laughs> I really yes. enjoy this video game. I could lose hours and hours and hours of my life to this video game. This is a first person shooter. You can also jump and you also get a variety of other abilities. But what I would really say it is, is a puzzle platformer, a 3D puzzle platformer, where there are very, very short, carefully designed levels And the key is to defeat each of them as fast as you possibly can. And you get a variety of abilities um, that only last for one round per ability uh, by picking up cards on the ground. So like one card is a double jump and another card is like shooting forward really fast. And there are levels designed around where those cards are located and then also little shortcuts you can get to each card. And also there's demons everywhere because like you're in heaven and you're trying to kill demons or something. There's a plot. I, I'm not that big of a fan of the plot. I think it's fine. Uh, mostly <laughs> mostly I'm into perfecting my times. I am not very good at neon white. I'm fine. But 
it's so fun to just keep trying to shave more and more seconds off your time. I don't know what it is about it. It's just really well designed. I wouldn't have thought I would be a person who's like, I just got to get a little faster at this. I'm not into speed running. I'm not like the person who plays racing games and is really good at them. I'm, in fact, I'm usually quite terrible at them and get motion sick from them. But this game, I don't get motion sick at all. And I just, I don't know, I really, really like getting a little bit faster each time. And usually you can do it even if by a few nanoseconds, and that's enough for you to feel like you're making some progress. And also the level design is good enough that you can kind of take a break from a level, go try another one. And it just, I don't know, it goes on and on and it's really fun. And best or perhaps worst of all, it will automatically pull in the times from all of your Steam friends at the end of every level. And it will tell you if you have performed better than your boss, Chris Plant, or not. And that sort of thing <laughs> is what I really like to know is <laughs> whether or not there, I've... There uh, it is. Well, that's what is affiliating you. Well, it also tells me whether I've performed better than my friends, Gita Jackson, Nico Deo, et cetera, et cetera. And, and if the two of you were to start playing it, for example, I would then get to see mm. if I were better oh, I did. than you. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly chasing... <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can beat me easily. Um, my friend Tyler Culp over at PC Gamer is like the top of every leaderboard, though. I can't beat him, which is infuriating. So <laughs> it's going fine. My brain's fine. I'm definitely not obsessing about everyone's times. And I have a healthy relationship with Neon White, a cool video game that I'm enjoying. Yeah, I think it's really fun. I've been playing on Steam Deck with um, gyro aiming, which is important because this game would probably be great with a mouse and keyboard. It does reward precision, but it works with the gyro. And I think that, I, yeah, I think that the pacing is a big part of what makes it so fun is that the levels are very short and then you instantly start them over. You can just press a button and start yep. over instantly with no downtime. And then I do like the leaderboards, not because I get all competitive, but because they sort of tell me what's possible. Mm, and so mm -hmm. if you know that you could shave like three or four seconds off, yeah. just knowing that is kind of fun. I'm like, oh, there must be like a, a, another pathway that I'm not seeing. Yeah, And it, it kind is of fun. indicates what, what you might be yeah, able to Yeah, like do. it is fun if you finish it and you're like, oh, that's 35 seconds. I think I went as fast as I could. And you're like, wait, what? Everyone's at 18, 17, right. 16? seconds well, I must have missed like a huge shortcut and then you have to play it again through different eyes and be like mm -hmm. what was I missing here there must be another way to get around and then you f discover it and it's amazing it's, a, yeah. it's the best yeah, it's a good <laughs> best feeling ever so yeah that's me Kirk finishes off my one more thing is a TV show I've been watching that I alluded to earlier another Paramount Plus show which I know is enough for a lot of people to not watch it. We've been still loving Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which is on Paramount TV+. And it's the kind of thing where, now that we have, at least for the next month or two, this subscription, um, sort of looking around at what else might be there, and had seen ads for this show, Players, which is my one more thing, a show from uh, Tony Ascenda, who is the director of American Vandal, which I know, Jason, you and I really liked. Manny, did you watch American Vandal? Mm -hmm. I can't remember. Oh, it was, it was good. fantastic seasons. And um, Players is also really, really good, and I want to recommend it to people, especially because this show is about gamers. It's about uh, pro gamers. It's about uh, the LCS, League of Legends, a team, fictional team of League of Legends players. And it is a really true-to-life, very accurate-to-gaming portrayal that is also very funny and very dramatic and very satisfying, and I'm really wrapped up in the story. And I think it's great. It's much better than I expected. So the premise is essentially this team called Fugitive, who are made up, Fugitive Gaming, 
their star player is this guy Cream Cheese, who is 27 and kind of aging out <laughs> of mm-hmm. pro gaming. And he founded the team. So he's kind of the star uh, player and he plays support. And they do a good job of letting of making it clear how this team works and like how League works without getting bogged down and explaining everything. Because it's really in the end just a sports story. It could be about a basketball team. And you'd get it if you watched it. You'd be like, oh, okay, so this guy's the new power forward and this guy's the guard and like they need to play together and this player and this guy had this relationship. And you figure out how it works. It's just instead it's, you know, whatever these these different teams. Oh, this guy's switching from top to mid. You know, this guy's the playing League of Legends. And you kind of, you get it. Um, And there are also plenty of characters in the show who don't know about League of Legends. So people will like really briefly explain things and usually in funny ways. So it's shot like a documentary, though it's not real, just like American Vandal. So they're interviewing people. This is the story of Cream Cheese trying to get his team a, a championship, which they've never won. I guess a national championship, I think it is. And in the process, a new player called Organism, who's this, I think, like 19-year-old kid who's like this super hot shot from Twitch who's like amazing but doesn't really ever talk to anyone and is kind of this enigmatic, you know, superstar gets brought onto the team. And they replace Cream Cheese's longtime teammate with this kid, Organism, Cream Cheese. So there's this like battle of egos and Cream Cheese is very threatened. The actor who plays Cream Cheese is absolutely incredible. It's a great performance. He's this horrible sort of self-obsessed moron who's also then like at times really winning and likable and you cut it's just it's so good it's very much like american vandal how do they find these actors they always find these no name <laughs> and actors they're always right because have. they have to be no names because you know it has to be believable because there are a lot of real people from the league of legends scene you know casters and hosts and and all kinds of people are, are on this show as well it really looks authentic and it's you know i I presume made with Riot's imprimatur, so it's like all real League of Legends stuff and, you know, characters. And man, it's just so much fun. I, I really, Emily and I have both been watching it and really both enjoying it. And I am just only surface level aware of League and she doesn't know anything about it. But it's a fun show and it's just watching these guys sort of figure out how to play together. And it's a good sports story. It's sort of halfway through, but I'm, it seems like they're going to stick the landing. It's the most recent episode was just really great. And if you're into video games, like it's just so about the world that the three of us are all in all the time. And it's so authentic and loving and also very funny with a lot of really good characters. So honestly, I'm, I'm enjoying it even more than I thought I would. Incredible. And it's, it's really, really good. So that's players. It's on Paramount TV plus. I mean, American, American Vandal is so good that I can't wait to watch this. So uh, yeah, yeah. I, especially Jason, I think you will love it. Like oh, yeah. this show is just very no on, your, on your. I feel like I would too. I just. Oh, I think so do too. I have yes. to get another subscription service. Kirk, this is really do a free trial. <laughs> well, that's the thing, and this show is. I mean, it's it's really great. <laughs> I want to watch the Star Trek show too. So I guess I'm. Sold. I think the Star Trek show has been so good and continues to be so good that that I think would convince me at least to subscribe mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. till that season's over and then I'd cancel. And then this is like a fun bonus. It's like oh, there's also this other good show. So yeah. Between the two, it's not a bad sales pitch for them. And I am not in any way sponsored by (laughs) Paramount Plus. And I will be canceling our subscription as soon as there aren't any shows on it to watch. Anyway, though, good show. The Halo show is also on Paramount. (laughs) That I could not care less about. No, I'm just looking at what they they have stuff. They have stuff. Paramount Plus. They have a South Park, a new South Park movie. Okay. They have a new Beavis and Butthead movie, I think. They've got oh, stuff. It's yeah. like there's there's stuff there. It's not a it's not a barren wasteland. Um, all right. Well, that is it for this week's episode. Thank you, yeah. as always, for listening. Thank you, too, for talking. And uh, I will see you both next week. <laughs> You're welcome. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.